Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11 in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us look together at God's Word. The Word of the Lord says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, As I have sworn in my wrath, If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached, enter not and because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Last week, we came to the end of chapter 3 where the inspired writer he was continuing to utilize the ancient account of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness to help us to see that if we failed to exhort one another daily unto the end as they did if we failed to exhort one another in the continual fight of the Christian pilgrimage that we are on, it had perilous implications. It was dangerous implications. We see the implication of that very clearly, of him utilizing the analogy of the Israelites in the wilderness, hardened their hearts, failing to exhort one another, culminated or summarized in verse 19 last week, didn't we? We see, it says, that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And so we get a picture in that analogy that they were not sharpening one another, Brother Aaron. We get a picture there that they were not fighting the unbelief together. They were allowing it to grow. They were allowing it to be like a cancer and a plague throughout their entire community, their, their body, uh, their, their tribe. And it led to the disaster in verse 19. All of this use of that analogy was for the purpose for this first century church to take serious the duty and the responsibility that they were given first of all to God and then also to one another to come alongside one another and to help one another end the journey unto the end so they would they would remain steadfast unto the end. That was the whole purpose of him lifting up that analogy taken out of Psalms 95. And so today we're coming into chapter 4 And in the original letter that he would have written, there wouldn't have been these chapter breaks. He's still, as you've noticed, going all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, still playing with this analogy of the ancient Israelites in the wilderness, isn't he? He's still talking about the rest, the the need to beware of not hardening our hearts. You hear all of that. He's still operating in his argument to, to make them take these things seriously. And to add to his argument, or to add to his attempt 
to try to really press in upon their conscience the severity of what he's seeking to do, encourage them, awaken them, jolt them as if it were, to persevere to the end upon taking heed, upon exhorting in chapter 3. He now comes to chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to see today, and he tells them to exercise fear. So you you get this thread in his argument in chapter 3. Take heed, exhort, don't harden your hearts. And then he comes to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, fear. He says, fear. Well, what I want to do today is to seek to understand this additional part that he's adding to his sermon or his admonition to him to exercise fear in connection with what we also see in verse number 1, a promise still being left to enter into the rest. And so I've titled my message today, Evangelical Fear. What does he mean by calling these first century Christians to fear? Under our first heading, as you see in your notes, we want to consider what I mean by evangelical fear. Well, evangelical is really just another way of saying good news. That term really has changed a lot in modern times. When someone says, I'm an evangelical, you really don't know what they're saying. The old definition of an evangelical was a society of Protestants that advocated, and it was across denominational lines. You could be a Lutheran, you could be you know, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, what have you. Uh, but the old definition of an evangelical was someone who took a very firm stance that salvation was by grace alone. It was through the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. That's what the old term of evangelical meant. And so I'm calling this evangelical fear because I believe that when we ascertain what he is seeking to admonish them in, it's proper to identify it as a fear that is coupled with or conditioned by the right understanding that we are brought into the family of God by grace and we are kept by grace, but that doesn't make us immune from fear. That's what he's exhorting them to do. So this is why I'm calling it evangelical fear. But let's see if that's indeed a right uh, assumption to take there. No doubt at this point in this letter that we have been reading in the book of Hebrews, that we have been gaining you could say a greater appreciation or sense for it in the tone or the mannerism in which it was presented. It was intentionally inspired by God the Spirit to be designed to jolt these first century Christians, to awaken these brethren out of any sort of false security or false assurance that apparently they were being tempted to believe in. I think that up until this point, beginning with chapter 3, now coming into chapter 4, we get that overall sense of the letter, right? Uh, he is trying to use in Greek uh, phraseology and in his argumentation any device possible. Here, from the old analogy of the ancient Israelites that was penned by the inspired King David in Psalm 95, he pulled that out. And he's, he, he is trying to preach to them and he's trying to do all he can to help them see, don't be tempted with unbelief. Persevere unto the end. And now in order to add to that, he brings in this admonition to fear, to fear. Well, what what does the word mean itself, fear? I've given it to you in your notes. The word, the Greek word, phobio, or, or fabio, it comes from, or it gives us our Latin phrase, phobia. Many of us know phobia. Some of us have a phobia of spiders. Some of us have a phobia of other things. That's the actual Greek word that he uses here. Now, it carries with it three meanings. As we're seeking to understand, what is he trying to add to the argument to get them to really fully appreciate what he's saying, what he's trying to communicate? And we want to make sure we rightly understand it. He says in that word, fear, it means to be struck with fear. That's what he's communicating. Now let's, he says in verse 1, let us therefore be struck with fear. Or as you see in your notes, to be seized, to be bound up with alarm, to be afraid of one, of someone. Or to be so fearful that you would be hesitant to do something. 
That's the word he purposefully was inspired to use, and that's the word that we're dealing with. Now notice how in your notes, how that word has been translated elsewhere in the New Testament. Here it's the word fear, but also in the New Testament, the majority of times it's translated that very way, fear. But notice the second majority of the way it's translated, be afraid. The third way, be afraid of, and only one time is it translated reverence. So it's very clear what the writer's really indicating here. Take this example and you be discomforted with fear. Be really afraid. It's not, he's not saying be really reverent now, right? No, he's really saying, I want you to have a sense of fear that causes discomfort. That's what the word means. What we have done in the modern times of the church is we have come alongside the Christian and we've tried to domesticate this word fear. The meaning that he's putting it forth at this place of his sermon. And we've done it to our own detriment. For instance... You have in your notes there, notice how some modern translations, and I I think that this is a sloppy use of the word. You see that uh, the NIV translates it, let us be careful, be careful. The Christian Standard Bible does a little bit better, but still misses the mark. Let us beware. Beloved, that's different than be seized with alarm and fear. I was just thinking about this. Last week, uh, you remember Brother Grizz, we were talking about that old song, um, When the Squirrel Got Loose in the Church. Last week, you know, and this is church life, right? The dog came into our fellowship room and had a little bit, just excited seeing all these new people and kids. And what happened? The dog had a little accident on the tile. Well, it would be right to look at the children and, and to say, hey, be careful, be careful. But none of us were looking at the children saying, be fearful, be be seized with alarm. You you get the point? He's saying fear. And that's what he means to the Christian audience. You see, we don't have to take the teeth out of what he's saying in the modern church. Because what that does is it creates, what you see in your notes is what I'm identifying as, a modern fearless professor. In other words, when the modern Christian, not all, but but many will come to this after years and decades of taking the teeth and, and seeking to make this admonition to be so domesticated that it doesn't really mean be afraid. Some Christians will read this and they think, well, this sounds kind of strange. This sounds kind of strange because my doctrine of the assurance of salvation the teachings that I have received in my Christian upbringing about the assurance of salvation is one that has tended to insulate me from fearing anything. Uh, My assurance of salvation has insulated me to the degree that there's not one thing that should ever challenge my certainty or my assurance of salvation and cause me to ever be seized with alarm. And here you are telling me that this author is telling the Christian church to be seized with alarm and to be truthfully, dreadfully afraid. I call that the assurance that leads to hardness of heart. That's not biblical assurance. That's the type of assurance that leads a person to take evangelical grace and turn it into the lasciviousness that is warned about by the inspired writer Jude in verse 4 of his epistle. Because of this misguided doctrine of the assurance of salvation that implies once a person has professed faith in Christ, that they can completely be assured, they can completely be secured regardless, there's the key word, regardless of the subsequent decisions and actions of their life, that they are okay in going to heaven, that's the misguided assurance of salvation that comes to a verse like this and wants us to say, be careful, but not be afraid. Oftentimes, what's wrapped up in this false assurance is suggested that to even question the sincerity 
of your profession. It's akin to disthroning God in what God says. It's, a, it's, it's akin to disbelieving the faithfulness and the trustfulness of God. And so therefore, don't ever question the sincerity of your profession. Where there are any such societies that would operate under this sort of false assurance of salvation, new converts, they're never told that God, after giving them a new heart and a new mind, that God actually expects them to exercise with sanctified ability, not perfect ability, a different lifestyle in their life. They're never challenged to inspect fruit in their life, despite the fact that Jesus in Matthew 7.16, when he was asked, how how do we know who your disciples are? Well, he says, you will know them by their fruits. But in, in the type of circles where a false assurance of salvation permeates, No one is comparing themselves to the Word of God and no one is exhorted to ever do so, but simply to compare themselves with one another. And so, whenever such a professor's conscience is troubled with the glaring inconsistencies in their life, they're reassured that at worst, at worst, the only thing you're going to lose is not your salvation, dear Christian, but a loss of future rewards in heaven. And so clean up your act. If you want to get more rewards in heaven, clean up your act so you can persevere to the end and get those rewards. Why in the world would you want to forfeit rewards? This sort of thinking, which really has damaged the Christian church, it's grossly misinterpreted what the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit here means when he calls them to be afraid. He calls you to be fearful. What it has done is it's created what we call today a carnal Christian. And that's simply, little ones, when we say a carnal Christian, it's someone who professes to be a Christian, but makes a decision to ignore the glaring inconsistencies of their life in the Word. Whenever they're reading the Bible... And the Bible brings forth an inconsistency in their life. They purposefully, decidedly, because of their false assurance of salvation, ignore the warning, ignore the admonition, and think because they have simply believed upon Jesus, they've received baptism, that they will go into heaven. That's the carnal Christian that largely has been produced in a lot of churches. That's not what the writer here is advocating for. He's really wanting these Christians to be afraid of something. Not to have a glebe, a glebely understanding of what they have say they have partaken of and they've committed to. Despite the modern fearless professor, the writer here in the book of Hebrews, and in fact throughout all of the Bible, actually encourages us to be a fearful people. And so let's understand what kind of fear, what kind of fear are we to have? What is this evangelical fear that is the right balanced understanding of A, the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, and B, how it is we're to persevere to the end. Because in doing so, it will not only help us in our own personal sanctification, but also corporately to do what we were admonished to do last week, And verses 12 and 13, exhort one another daily. You find the admonition that evangelical fear is really a good thing and it's to be sought after in Scripture. Look at Proverbs 28.14. We'll just begin there. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardens his heart shall fall into mischief. And really, you know what? In chapter 4, verse 1, it's the same principle. That's what it's advocating. That evangelical fear, as I'm describing it, it's not something to be shunned. It's It's not something that has to be softened. No, it's something, as the writer is using it, to set forth before the conscience of God's people and say, be afraid. And we're going to see in just a moment what it is exactly we're to be afraid of. It's important for us to understand as we turn away from the wrong understanding of the modern fearless professors and the misunderstanding of the doctrine of the assurance of salvation, 
And we come to the place that allows Scripture to teach us what the right view of fear is. It's important for us to understand that fear is used in a good and a bad sense in the Word of God. And it's important for us then to grasp in what way it's being conveyed here in verse number 1 in order to help us to continue on steadfast unto the end as individuals and collectively. Well, the fear of God is often presented in Scripture as a starting point of all knowledge and something that is to be highly sought after. So let's look at how the fear is used in the Bible in a good sense. Proverbs 1.7 teaches us this much, that fear is the beginning of knowledge, it says in Proverbs 1.7. But fools are the ones who despise wisdom and instruction. Isaiah picks up on this principle of a a good use of evangelical fear in Isaiah 8.13. I've given it to you where he says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear. And let him be, look what it says, your dread. How many times today are Christians told, hey, let the Lord be your fear and to be your dread? No, you will not go to the modern Christian bookstore and find any books written about how the Lord is to be your fear and to be your dread. You will find a thousand books telling you how He's not to be your fear and not to be your dread. But here we see from Isaiah talking to a wayward people, right? And here we see in the book of Proverbs, the the book of wisdom in the Bible, that actually there's a right kind of fear that God's people are to be seeking after. Right? In light of just these few passages, beloved, there is a fear that is strongly to be encouraged in the hearts and the minds of us as God's people. And I would say that the right type of fear will be produced within the hearts and minds of God's people where there exists a faithful teaching and proclamation in a church of God's majesty and God's glory. When the doctrine of God is skewed from the pulpit, is skewed from the Sunday school classes, is skewed from the family worship, you're going to begin to get a false understanding of the fear in which we're talking about. But when His glory, His purity, His majesty is elevated up in the hearts and the minds of God's people, that He is a God both of justice and a God of mercy, no one would ever want to do what the Israelites, they ought not rather, this is what the inspired writer in Hebrews is trying to accomplish, it's absurd to ever think that you would want to trample on the long-suffering patience of God because His patience will not be trampled upon without consequences. This is what the writer is elevating. And I believe that when we faithfully teach God's Word in balance with the threatenings and the promises God's people will live that balanced life of having a right evangelical fear. Not walking upon eggshells. But yet, when they recognize in their life there's a long season, as Brother A.J. was emphasizing in Isaiah, the Old Testament Scripture in Isaiah 56, a long season of unrepentant sin, an outright rebellion against God. They ought to be called. Indeed, the Holy Spirit will prick their conscience, beloved, that you are walking on dangerous ground, you have every reason to be fearful. To be fearful. Has your heart truly deceived you and thinking that you're really a Christian? No matter your profession, no matter the baptism you received, right now let the Holy Spirit through God's Word be your x-ray. And it seems as though you're living more of a life consistently as an unbeliever than someone who's following Jesus in obedience. Fear the Lord. A correct doctrine of God. As I said, it should produce and it should maintain a correct and a balanced fear in the life of a true believer. Beloved, the writer of Hebrews is utilizing this language and utilizing these threatenings and these analogies to cause some of these people in this church to have an emotional, discomforting fear. He wants them to be laying down at bed at night, asking themselves sincerely, 
Why am I allowing these areas of unbelief to continue? I know the truth. I've tasted the truth. God has parted the Red Sea in my life so many times. He's done this. He's done that. I need to pick up the cross by God's grace. He has given me the power in the Gospel of John to become one of His sons, to become one of His daughters. And I am playing games with this sin of unbelief in my life. That was the design of drawing up this word as it's intended in all of its seriousness to be afraid, to be seized with alarm. Now, the scripture also uses fear in a condemning way, as you see in your notes. And that's not how the writer's using it here. It refers to a condemning type that often in scripture represents the characteristic of an unbeliever. Those who are wicked in the world. You remember the slothful servant. He had this sort of fear that we're not to have. This is not what the writer in Hebrews is advocating. I've given it to you in Luke 19.21. You remember uh, his master was a very severe man. He was away on a trip. He comes back. He's entrusted this servant to do some things and the servant didn't do it. Why didn't he do it? He said, for I feared thee. Because thou art an an austere man, meaning he was a severe and a cruel man. Thou takest up, the servant said to him, that thou layest not down, and thou reapest that thou didst not sow. So, you see, this man had a fear of his servant that his servant actually would lash out in cruelty. Not in love, not in a fatherly disposition to do what's right for him, but in a harsh punishment, lash out against him. And so in that sort of dreadful fear, what did he do? He, he was frozen. He was kind of seized. And you remember, that's part of the meaning of what the word means. Someone who can't, who are hesitant, they, they can't even move because they're so fearful. Well, that's a fear that's descriptive of this slothful servant. Not that what the first century church ought to, uh, is, is supposed to have. Notice here again, Uh, that the wicked are also classified with this condemning fear along with unbelievers in the book of Revelations, chapter 21, verse 8. Notice what this condemning fear is connected with or put alongside with. It says there in the Bible that the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and the liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's not the fear that's being described in Hebrews 4.1, the evangelical fear. This is a fear that's disconnected from any relationship with the Creator God. It's a fear that understands that there is a condemning weight, a a pending judgment upon someone for their sinful heart, their sinful actions. And that fear is coupled exactly with those who unbelieve on the last day of judgment is the very thing that's going to come crashing down on that individual. You see, they've spent their whole life at the last day of judgment running from this fear trying to escape this fear, doing everything to be distracted from the sort of fear of a a plaguing conscience of this last judgment. And here it catches up with them. We see in Revelations 21.8. This isn't evangelical fear, church. This is the condemned fear that we're to avoid. One more instance of the condemned fear we can find in the life of King David. King David, uh, as recorded in 1 Chronicles, Chapter 13, when God had told him, David, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant and I want you to bring it now to the temple. And David, in the transportation of the Ark, he saw Uzzah touch the Ark, which was against the commands of God. And he saw the severity that God struck Uzzah with, with death. And what did David do? The condemning sort of fear, the wrong understanding fear of God, it gripped his heart, it seized him, and he couldn't do anything, he couldn't move. Oh, this God is so unpredictable that now I can't even serve Him because if I do, I don't know what He'll do. Maybe He'll kill me next. No, God gave 
a prescriptive way in order for his ark to be carried. And when you follow his ark the way he prescribed and he is commanded, guess what? He's very predictable. He will be faithful to his commands. He will be faithful to his word. So David allowed a dreadful condemning fear to misplace the previous evangelical fear in this moment of weakness that he previously possessed. You see that? Well, that's the fear that we're supposed to avoid. Beloved, God is true to His Word. He's true to His Word. He's not unpredictable. It's not as though you break the speed limit out here tomorrow and there's no more repentance held forth for you. (laughs) You've got to have this dreadful fear and you say, well, I can't move to the left and to the right, so this whole Christian thing is just way too hard. I can't do it. I mean, I'm trapped with this fear of this unpredictable God. No, that's the condemning type of fear. I think that it's obvious at this point which fear is being talked about in verse number one. I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but let's ask the question. Which type of fear, especially young ones, is the inspired writer of Hebrews telling these Christians to have? He's telling them, lest we fear, therefore fear, lest a promise that's being left us There's a promise left for us. Let us fear, lest this promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should come short of having that promise. Well, despite the error of the modern fearless professor, we've seen that the Bible doesn't teach that a sober, cautious, alarming fear of coming short of heaven through unbelief is itself unbelief. In other words, the Bible actually, especially here in Romans 1 and some of the few other passages we've already looked at, brothers and sisters, it actually encourages a healthy word-centered, not a speculative-centered, a word-centered evaluation of our profession in contrast of a light-hearted, trivial, easy believism. It's not at all designed evangelical fear to lead one to stop believing. We don't have to be afraid of that. Because the inspired writer here called them and he calls us to be sober or have a sober regard from whenever God's Word tells us to be afraid, to tells, tells us to be circumspect, to, help us, to tell us to have self-watch. You see, he's doing this so that when we as Christians come to the Bible and when God has a threatening, we take the threatening serious. It's not as though we just say, well, I know because A, B, and C, and D, this really doesn't have any teeth to it. It doesn't apply. That, that would be a dreadful mistake. A dreadful mistake, which would ought to cause you to pause and say, maybe I need to reevaluate my doctrine of the assurance of salvation because it could very quickly lead to a catalyst of the hardening of the heart. The air, I'm afraid, to which many have fallen, King David was prone to fall, you and I are prone to fall into, is an unscriptural view of saving faith. True saving faith has regard, serious regard, to all of God's Word. And it gives heed to His warnings as well as to His promises. It gives credits to the motives of fear when they're presented, as well as giving credit to hope. And this both together, valid, respectful, concerning fear for the authority of the threatenings in God's Word, connected with the promises that He's just and able to forgive, is what helps us together persevere unto the end. We noticed last week that one of the main means in which Christ will do that is in the community of us being together as a local body. And so while this is definitely has implications individually, I hope you see that it has a broader implication for us as brothers and sisters together in the church. The fear which the writer here today is writing is not the uncertainty of hope, but listen clearly It is an eager concern for careless indifference. We have to make that distinction. 
It's the wholesome fear, as you see in your notes, that I believe is taught and admonished in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. What does the inspired Apostle Paul there say? He says the same thing that's being mentioned here in chapter 4, verse 1, regarding the fear that a Christian is to have. Philippians 2, 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. This is careful. This is diligent. This fear is circumspective. It is a true, holy dread. It is a sincere concern of falling short of the promise of rest that's held forth in the gospel, lest unrepentant sin be allowed to continue in our life. If it is found and discovered, beloved, I pray the Holy Spirit will plague your conscience and my conscience until we never settle down at peace with it. We plead the mercies, we plead the power of God to help us through His Word, to prune, to cut, to carve, to gouge these things that we know are not pleasing unto the Lord. That's the intention of this scalpel, this surgical instrument Fear that's being advocated here in chapter 4, verse 1. This is a very humbling fear. This is a fear that crushes all the high-mindedness of one's self and strips away all self-reliancy. And that's exactly, I believe, how the Apostle Paul understood this sort of fear that we're to possess. It's to humble us and it's to strip away our self-reliancy. How do I, why do I say that? Because look at what he says in Romans 11.20. In this vein or in this thread of understanding evangelical fear, he tells them, in the context here, this church, they um, got a glimpse of the beautiful new covenant reality that now not only is eternal life uh, held out not only for the Jews but it's also available for all the nations including them as Gentiles and in fact the uh, new covenant is replacing the old covenant Christ the Messiah has come and he as AJ was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 he's tore down the middle wall partition and now there's just but one people of God well the Roman church some individuals in the Roman church they started getting a little prideful about that and they, they actually were looking down on the Jewish people a little bit. You know, how could you guys be so ignorant? They were thinking of themselves. You've had the oracles of God all this time. And here are your own people. Jewish, you know, the apostles were all originally Jewish. They came to you and they unfolded the great mysteries. Ah, we saw those, you know. We, we, we were blessed and we were, you know, able to see these spiritual truths. And Paul comes in in Romans 11. And he kind of humbles them a little bit, you could say right here. He says in that context, hey, thou standest by faith. That's true. That's good. You've understood and ascertained the gospel. Be not high-minded, but here's the word, fear. Be afraid. Take seriously in your pride, your conceited spiritual pride, religious pride in this context. Because if God spared not the natural branches... Take heed lest he also spare not thee. I think the warning was very clear, right? Whoa. Man, I mean, Paul, I thought that I was saved by faith and I had my ticket and nothing could ever take away that ticket. That's the wrong doctrine of assurance of salvation to be walking around in such a prideful, high-minded attitude. You see, beloved, it's a beautiful thing to look at the promises of God and know, oh God, it is by your sovereign power, as we talked about in Matthew 19 in the reading of the New Testament reading, to say, God, by your sovereign power, you, you, you say, you promise, you will keep me unto the end. And at times, Lord, it seems that that's the only thread. Your promise is the only thread that gets me through the next day because I'm so just... Um, uh, uh, tired of myself. I'm so disgusted with myself. And oh God, if it wasn't, but that little mere thread of a promise, there's no way I would even get through. Well, beloved, that is all good. And that is all true. But that you hear is a very humble person. It's not a high-minded person. 
That carnal Christian we were talking about earlier, that will never allow the Word of God to come as an x-ray and x-ray their life. The right evangelical fear that is always believed by the old church, that needs to be reclaimed a lot in the new church, is this right here intended to humble us as the people of God and to walk in faithful obedience to Him by the strength we seek from Him day by day. I would say in following that, that when we lose a sense of self-weakness, when we lose a sense of humility, which is granted at the cross, in true repentance upon our knees, we will begin to, we are prone to, trust in ourselves. And we know that the Scripture tells us that he who trusts himself is what? Not wise. Proverbs 1.7, but is a fool. Is a fool. No, our security, our confidence must be, must only be in God. And the confidence that I'm talking about that is entwined with evangelical fear, the right kind of fear, possesses two essential ingredients. Evangelical fear has a confidence, not a high-minded prideful confidence, but a confidence that first senses one's own weakness and limits. Evangelical fear is coupled with the reality that I cannot do this on my own. But it's also coupled with this other essential ingredient, and that is the power, the goodness, and the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. This sort of biblical fear produces strong confidence. Not an intrepid, walking-on-eggshells confidence. Not a carnal Christian confidence that I can just coast through my Christian life without ever allowing the Word of God to truly examine me. But no, a strong confidence that's in the fear, the proper fear of the Lord. Look at your sermon notes in Proverbs 14.26. This comes through wonderfully. In the fear, here it is, the evangelical fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not just confidence, beloved, but it's strong confidence. And His children, His fearful, humble, reliant children, they have a place of refuge. David didn't have to run from the Lord. No, David needed to implore the Lord, Lord, what did Uzzah do? Maybe we didn't understand something, you know. They they understood. They They had the rules for transporting the ark. And God would say, this is my way of communicating to you of just how holy I take my worship, how holy I take my, my commandments. You see, David, it's important to obey me. It's important to follow the prescription that I've given you in your life. Oh, I see. You love us. You have a prescription for us. These are the guardrails to help us to move forward as a people and as individuals. And it would have produced in David not an intrepid fear which would cause him to disobey God, but what? Find refuge and a strong confidence that God is faithful to His Word. And all i got to do is to look to Him. i got to seek Him and pray that He will clarify for me His Word is sufficient. His revelation is sufficient. And when I do not understand it, I, be, I need to have a patient heart, a quiet heart. And I need to wait upon the Lord for the answer about something that I'm not sure about. Go to the other brothers and sisters in the, the family of God that are there to exhort me daily and to help me find the, the Word from the Lord in His Scriptures. That's evangelical fear that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Now, bringing back or looking back now, we can say that our comfort, you could say our spiritual safety, it depends, beloved, upon a proper mixture of both evangelical fear and hope. In fact, they're inseparable. Evangelical is the hope, and the fear is the, is the fear that we were just speaking of. It's a hope that, will be, that God will be true to His Word. As He says, He will never leave us nor forsake us. And it's also a true fear where when He says, as you have in your sermon notes in 1 Peter chapter 17, He calls us to be holy because He is holy. And if we call on the Father who without respect of persons 
judges according to every man's work, pass the time, live out the rest of our Christian life, our journey here on, on earth, with what? Fear. So trust and hope, but it is a sincere fear. Reflecting upon the lives of the Israelites as we look back here in chapter 3 in this analogy, they rightly observed the power of their enemies who, what? Were commanded to fight the Canaanites, weren't they? But they lost sight of the power of God. They, 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 they began to let a different fear control them. God had opened the sea for them, caused them to pass through. He had given them manna. He had given them water from a rock. He had guided them through all of this wilderness that they were on. He did it in a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. With all of that, God could have easily given them the victory. He could have easily. But they walked by sight. They looked at the Canaanites and they refused to attack them because they had, they possessed the wrong kind of fear. They feared men. They didn't fear the command of God. Every single one of the heads of households in ancient Israel in the wilderness at night, after that campfire was put out, should have on their bed been thinking, this isn't right. God who did all of those wonderful works, He has commanded us. He has told us. His desire for us is to go despite what I am scared will happen to me. You see, a sense of wanting to obey the Lord truly and sincerely. But unbelief crept in. Their conscience was hardened. And the majority of them enabled one of those conscience to be hardened even more. Because around the campfire, you know, one Jewish man would look at another and, 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 and reaffirm his own unbelief. I think I'm right. Do you think I'm right? I mean, you saw the size of those guys. I mean, look at us. We, we don't have any weapons, etc., etc. And when his brother should have said to him, you know, you're right, but God would never command us. God would never ask us to do anything that we can't do with His strength. He's going to be with us. They didn't do that. Instead, what did they do? They did. They began to uh, play off of one another, didn't they? You know, I think we can do that sometimes in the Christian church. I know I've been guilty of that. We'll, we'll test the waters kind of in a conversation, right? Of something that has maybe a mixture of ideologies that aren't exactly biblical or even practices. Now, can I do the most sacrilegious thing and bring it up before Christian's mind here as a pastor for application, our media choices, right? Maybe, maybe we tiptoe around one another in our media choices where there's a, a film or a movie that you know, uses God's name in vain. There's much sensuality in it. There's a lot of violence in it. Implications of sensuality, so forth and so on. And we want, we want to see it for the other Christians in the church, agree with that movie. And so we'll kind of talk about it a little bit. And then we'll get, a, we'll, get a, we'll get a feeling whether or not they agree with it or not. Instead of us ourselves having a true fear of God, where God's Word explicitly tells us not to let your eyes behold vanity, not to indulge your mind with that filth. You see, we don't really truly possess a fear of God. And we want to know, does the brother or sister next to us have the same level or lack of fear of God that we do? Because if he does or she does, then maybe I'm okay. Paul says, as I've said before, which is a deadly mistake, deadly mistake, comparing yourselves with one another. We're to compare ourselves in the fear of God with His Word. With His Word. And where we are wanting, brothers and sisters, let us with gentleness, with meekness, exhort one another daily. But that didn't happen with the ancient, ancient Israelites, did it? They had the promise of God pledged to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had their own triumph over the Egyptians in the Red Sea to assure them that God would give them victory. But all the proofs of God's power in the wilderness, they forgot and they only thought of the power of the Canaanites by refusing to enter the land, and they came short of the promise. 
They did not have the right fear that the writer of Hebrews is advocating for us today. This brings us briefly now to consider the promise of rest, which verse number one is being held forth with. We spent most of our time, indeed all of our time, so I'm just going to barely, uh, just really in closing thoughts, um, really shortly treat this second heading. We have evangelical fear. We've labored to understand what is it that the writer of Hebrews is really truly communicating to us. Let us therefore fear. We know what he means now. Lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Here we have the evangelical promise right in the same verse where the evangelical fear is being advocated for. The thrust of this verse, no doubt, is intended to be joined with the thoughts that you see in chapter number 3, verse 6. What did he say there? You are Christ's house if you hold fast. You see, this is to come alongside those verses. Also, with all the verses in 7-11, through 11, using Psalms 95 as the, the, the old warning. And then last week in verses 12 and 13. All of this was, that's the thrust of this, to press even further upon the conscience of these original audience in order to awaken them to the seriousness that was at hand in their church. However, notice in this verse that the promise is still being lifted up as being available to them. It's still being offered in that verse you may have become a little bit misunderstanding in the gospel and the freeness of grace that truly is available in Christ Jesus. And you remember uh, there's many who believe that the writer of Hebrews was the Apostle Paul himself. You remember that. Um, That's not conclusive. We can't be dogmatic about it. But Paul was often misunderstood as, as teaching that the freeness of the gospel meant that people can just live any way they want. And he addressed that largely in the book of Romans, chapter 5 and 6. And so we see here today that there is a possibility, another sign that this could have been pinned by Paul. Because he's saying, listen, be fearful. If there's any of you that are entertaining these ideas, notice because a promise being left of us of entering into his rest is still at hand don't be found coming short of it. Today is still today. Today, repentance. Today, grace is still held forth. And that's kind of been the tenor or the nucleus of the last several sections beginning with chapter 3. Watch, take heed, exhort, fear, really fear. And guess what? The promise of His rest is here still yet today. The proper biblical fear is here, yes, emphasized in order to heighten the beauty of the promise of rest and doing anything that could possibly hinder entering into that rest. With the warning of possibly coming short through carelessness, the writer here therefore urges them to continually take prudent heed of their ways. For whenever our perseverance in faith and the pursuit of practical holiness begins to grow sluggish, we need to find hope in the fact that it's still available today, the rest promised in Christ and Christ alone. We must believe and have faith while it still is today. We have to have faith, as you see in your notes, in the truth of 1 John 1.9. That if I have had that condemning wrong fear, it seized me from moving forward in my life, whether or not of sanctification or what have you, whatever it is. We need to believe that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's there. He's holding that forth. The promise is still here left for us today. While it is still today, he's emphasizing he will do it again as we already read in chapter 4. Take action while it's still today. Because when today's gone, 
And the second coming occurs and the judgment which we read about in Matthew 19 occurs. It's too late. It's too late. There's no more time to reflect on the hardness of heart. There's no more time to reflect on habitual, long, unrepentant sin. Brothers and sisters, it's too late. The evangelical promise as we walk away from today's message will be made certain as we will explore future passages in chapter 4 by the hand of God. And this is one of the beautiful I will passages in Jeremiah 32.40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them That's this first century Christians and us as well. To do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. What a beautiful promise God gives us. He says that through the power of His Spirit, He will put this fear in our hearts. The apostle today puts before us an examination and challenges us to be fearful And to sincerely, with all the connections of the threatenings, examine our own hearts. We do that, how? By the Spirit of Christ that we've been given. By the Spirit of Christ that we've been given. So then that begs the question at the end of the message. A carnal carnal Christian, as they're so called, who can live a consistent life that Constantly goes against the Word of God. Anytime Proverbs 1-7, someone comes along in the right spirit, gentleness and meekness, and tries to correct, exhort, instruct, they despise it and say, don't you dare challenge my profession. You have to sincerely ask yourself, has God truly given them a spirit of His fear? Because if He has, He says right there, they will fear me. They will fear me. I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. You see, someone who possesses evangelical fear, they're going to say, I'm so right, you told me that. You know, I I was deceiving myself. The little clique I'm in of other Christians, we all were deceiving ourselves. We were thinking the same way. But I see from the Word of God there is no way we can be thinking that. And we ought not definitely to be practicing that. You're right. Thank you. Good sign. That's a good sign that that individual has the fear that we're talking about prescribed and inscribed rather upon their heart by the very finger of God through the power of His Spirit. Amen? One of the true marks of a Christian is when discipline comes, exhortation comes, they receive it. They welcome it. They don't kick against it. Well, you have in your sermon notes there the closing thoughts for today. But dear Christian, I pray that you walk away not in a spirit of downcast dreadfulness of having fear, but you rightfully understand what evangelical fear is and that you are to possess. And likewise, with that proper understanding of the proper, I'm sorry, the proper understanding of evangelical fear, that now you're a little bit more emboldened, not in an arrogant, high-minded way. Remember, the result of it is humbleness but to come along other people who profess to be Christians, but are clearly exhibiting by the things they say, the things they tweet, the the way they live, that they are not a Christian or they are in a serious backslidden state, that you will come alongside them and say, you know, the Bible does teach the fear of God. The Bible does teach us as Christians to be watchful, careful, circumspect. And I mean, can I just share with you some things? Lest I ignore the splinter in my own eye. I, I mean, I don't mean to, to point out, I'm sorry, I don't mean to point out the splinter in your eye, lest I ignore the beam in mine. But hey, you know, brother said, this is glaring here, right? I had to do that this week. I was in a conversation with someone who's, they go to a charismatic church and we're talking about family affairs and they start naming and claiming and using this language and all this stuff. Now, what did I have to do? I had to, in a very gentle, meek way, say, you know, you just threw some things out here in this conversation that I just want to pause and please, I'm trying to understand your heart, where you're coming from, but 
we have to understand this biblically, what you're saying. How do you not know what you're saying you claim is actually the will of God because you're not God? And how do you know that you have the power to claim things and bring them into existence? And, and all of a sudden, you see very quickly when you do that. I think that this person, and to their credit, is a true child of God because you know what? There wasn't any, any kicking back. There, at least there wasn't communicated. It could have been a silence of, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, of a stiff neck. But it, but, it, but it wasn't communicated. I think that the person really thought, you know, I've never thought that through. I've never heard those scriptures before. I never really seriously considered the implications of what I'm saying and believing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm going to have to read more into that. And that's exactly how it ended. Well, praise God. Praise God, right? I just happened to be right in this study of the fear of God, right? And of exhorting one another. So you say, beloved, the Christian here today, this right understanding of evangelical fear, it equips you not only to examine your own heart, but to be salt and light, as AJ said in the first Old Testament reading, salt and light to those who are walking in ignorance. You and I have a responsibility to our family members, to our co-workers. Whenever things are said, etc., etc., you know, you're not walking around, brothers and sisters, with the Bible thumping people in the head. But take the lesson from Jesus today when he was interacting with the rich young ruler, as he interacted with the woman at the well, as this writer inspired by the Holy Spirit today is interacting with these first century Christians. And use the truth like that surgical instrument with your influence upon people and bring light, bring light and truth to their life. And let God be God, right? You remember in Matthew 19, Jesus said, with man it's impossible But with God, all things are possible. So now stand back and say, you know what? There are some conversations that I need to be having with some people. And boy, I'm dreading those conversations. (laughs) Man, I'm just so dreadful. The the drama, the chaos, the, you know what I mean, is going to be a result of it. But you know, for the care of their soul, they need to be spoken the truth. Brothers and sisters, gird up the loins of your mind. With humility, great humility, exhort, lift up, right? Bring the fear, evangelical fear to the table, professing believers in your life, and let God do the impossible. Amen? Because He will. He will. Don't be the person looking at the size of the Canaanites. Don't be the husband looking at the size of the situation and neglected things in the marriage. Don't be the wife thinking he's never going to change because, no, 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 no. Those are, the, those are the, the size of the Canaanites. We need to bring the word of God to bear upon all things and trust that he will work it out for his good. Well, we see for the unbeliever here today, we have, you have sat possibly for those who may be listening to this message online or lest I be deceived anyone in our midst today, you've heard me talk much about a Christian's to have fear of God, but you're to have an altogether different sort of fear. There's a fear looming over you that's much like the story of Pilgrim's Progress that is the weight of your sins, even just one sin that is able to condemn you to eternal hell and fire and brimstone. That is a real fear. And what the gospel is holding forth today in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 is saying, lest you come short of the promise that is offered in Jesus Christ, today come, bow your prideful heart. Say, I know that I need a Savior. I know that I need forgiveness of these sins. And my holy hope is in Jesus Christ, the freeness of salvation that he offers to me at his sacrificial cross. Jesus left all the glories above to die for sinners. The whosoevers will believe upon him. He had to die because of the ugliness, the filthiness of your sins. Come, accept the grace of Christ today that's available at the foot of Calvary and enter into this relationship with your heavenly father, your creator in which he will lead you and he will guide you by his word and the paths of truth and light. Begin a new life. I was telling a little Christian just recently, I said, I'm so excited for your life. 
I said, you have 20 years advancement than what I've had. I became a Christian around the year when I was around 27 years old. This, this person has 20 years ahead of me. I said, just think when you're 27, you will have learned so much. Not in a prideful way, but in, but in a spiritual way. You will have grown so much and God could greatly use you. What a blessing it is to be present here today or hearing this message and the offer of God's forgiveness is being held forth before you so that you can flee the fear of condemnation that is rightfully being held over over you. See that as a beautiful, beautiful orchestration of the kindness of God and His providence. That you are hearing the gospel. Come to Christ. Come today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Holy Father, Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity, God, to be able to gather together as your sons and your daughters to come, Lord, under your word and to be able to open it up and to consider its meaning. We believe, O God, that this is how you speak to us. We believe that through your word, you directly communicate with us as your people. What a wonderful privilege, O God, it's been. Lord, what a wonderful privilege to gather with these brothers and sisters And together by our very presence, Lord, we are uh, visibly demonstrating our need and our reliance upon your daily sustaining grace. And Lord, as we walk away understanding the proper understanding of evangelical fear, the fear that a Christian is to have, I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you will, as we've seen in many texts that have been read today, uh, use it as a surgeon. Use it as a surgeon upon our hearts and our minds. And oh God, grow us up, mature us and sanctify us. And Lord, what a fitting text that humbles us and in many ways, Lord, challenges us. What a fitting text to have reviewed and considered together as your people as we are approaching your supper. Lord, those texts in your word of, that tells us that, Lord, we are to really take serious these threatenings, lest we be deceived of an unbelieving heart, Lord, are also in proper balance to be connected with your sovereign grace and your sovereign power of putting your fear in our hearts and trusting that you are still the God who holds forth repentance if we would just confess and believe and come to you in a humble heart, Lord, seeking to follow you afresh and anew. And this is what we're remembering in the supper. We're remembering the work of Christ. We're remembering all the evangelical good news and promises that is held forth in his gospel. And so I pray and I ask, O God, that as we approach your supper, after our moment of silence, that you will minister to each and every heart here today. You are the one O God, as Jesus exhibited in his interactions with the young man that can see into the hearts of men. And you know, O God, each and every person here today who will be partaking of the supper, where they need to be met at. And I pray, O God, that you would minister to them, that as they are with, Lord, humbled eyes, needy eyes, looking again at the cross work of Jesus Christ, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would aid and that you will help them. Oh God, help us as weak and feeble creatures to cast our cares, cast our needs at the foot of the cross. We bless you, we trust you, God, and we love you all because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray these things. Amen.